Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone, welcome to my turn. I think I just scared Rob. <laughs> uh, no, I was just disappointed you didn't say. Mom said it's my turn. <laughs> yeah, mama. you do it every ma, time. Mama, ma. it feels like we just—it feels it feels like we stumbled into your apartment. <laughs> like, hey, hey, welcome. It's New York. My turn here. <laughs> Um, welcome to my turn, the podcast where we pick movies that are tangentially related in in an order with which I've long lost, long forgotten. We just would a would an an inspiring waypoint listener uh-huh. produce a website that just says who picks next? Who picks next? <laughs> yes. So please. I could go who picks next and God it just says it. the next the next one is knowing that we go. You know, through and then back, and yes. like you, you know, even listening, you, you can figure it. out the order. There's some weird we don't jumps pay because of the 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 listener pick. So just mm-hmm. figure it out; it'll be fine. Um, this this time, I almost said this week, as if we were doing this weekly. This time on, on my 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 turn, we watched Mandy, the twenty. Uh, 20- 18 sorry waypoints pick of the week yes yeah yeah uh, yeah the first waypoint uh oh my god did did anyone go back and listen to that did anyone double check whether or not we actually talked about that movie because i feel like we didn't talk about discussion we did talk about the movie yeah god damn it discussion why would you go back and listen to it Like, what are you doing with your time? You have, I have too little time. The notion of yeah. going back to completely listen to our Manny discussion not, as a refresher before be. this is unhinged behavior, but <laughs> live your life. Couldn't be me. Um, uh, yeah. Mandy, the 2018, uh, horror, horror? Honestly, we can get back to that. It's like weird because, um, like it got called a horror movie a lot, but you know, there's genre lines are always so fuzzy. But uh, filmed by, uh, I always, it. I don't like recommend simple- it to someone who who has liked a horror movie before, even if sure. I, I could would agree with you on with the genre, like aesthetically and gore fought wise, it is pulling enough that's like, look, you might want to watch Nick Cage like thrash around in a bathroom. Who wouldn't? But. <laughs> Yes. Also, you're going to watch him shove a pike through a man's face very slowly as his face God. Uh, disintegrates. God. Yeah. Um, uh, Panos, I, I'm... T- Cosmantos? Cos- yeah. I don't Cosmatos, know why sure. I have such a 
a tough time because it's cosmat just cosmatos, right? Pretty sure. Okay. Pretty sure. Uh, so there's second film. So right? yeah, he's he's the son of George P. Cosmatos, uh, who was a uh, pretty well regarded director of like the. 80s uh, did Rambo First Blood Part 2, but also like directed Tombstone, or did he? Because there's like long-standing rumors that he kind of was overwhelmed by making that movie and Kurt Russell effectively uh, stealth-directed it. Um, wow. But either, either way, Who's this, a, is, this is a uh, poltergeist situation. <laughs> um, also did Leviathan. That's a great cheesy B, uh, B-movie horror. Nice. Um, highly recommended. Um... I ended up picking Mandy partially on um, a very strong aesthetic association I had. Um, with like. Just kind of like this. Um, the the kind of mythos of the these two movies, like the like. It's not quite magical realism, but like that, that sense of like the the where the edge of like the real and imagined and uh kind of mythological worlds blend um was like a big a big a big reason that where I was like yeah this is where we can go next um also like uh jumping back to was it two movies ago that we watched green knight uh yeah it was green also, knight was the one before also last. Accidentally attaching the red, the red. And really, magic. green. Yeah, Green Knight's the movie. I actually found myself thinking about a yes. lot as I watched this, uh, just in terms of like uh, visually and just some of the the camera work. I yeah. definitely like um, had it had had thought of that movie. Have had thought of Mandy when we were watching that movie, but then watching uh, the Lighthouse also was like. Wait a second. <laughs> there's still a connection. There's a there's a connection here that I think is still very strong. And I was like, fuck it, let's do it. Well, I mean, like, if there's if there's one piece of connective tissue between the lighthouse and Mandy, it is like some of the most bold production decisions that I've seen <laughs> yeah. in yes. my entire life. Right. Like these they are both movies that are like fully committed to an aesthetic mm-hmm. in such a way that is like I think really cool. I think, yeah. I think they're both very fun to watch in their understanding of the tools that they have given themselves. The like strobing lights every single time that, um, <laughs> they pull out like one a- of the characters in this film pulls out an artifact, yeah. whether it be the horn of Abraxas or, uh, the despoiled blade. The despoiled um, blade. <laughs> when like the, the green light starts strobing as he picks it up, it's just like, it, it, this is a movie that is so much a damn movies can be like this mm-hmm. movie for me in terms of just like fully leaning into style and like being a weird tone poem to like throw out everything else, just be a collection of images yeah. uh, in a way that I like absolutely adore. Yeah. It's like what, uh, like medium format film and sea shanties are to the, um, are to the lighthouse. This is like, uh, late seventies, early eighties, like heavy metal, like all those like wild, uh, cosmic and or just like high fantasy illustrations that I mean, with literally that sort of heavy music. metal, right? Yes, like yes, exactly. like the animated film, like you know, the animated film. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I I I don't know. I haven't read enough to know if that is a specific inspiration on this, but I cannot help 
but I never saw right. the, 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 anim, like, the animated film, but like the box art is like enshrined in my mind because I yeah. would always see it at the video store. And I couldn't help but look at this and just see like a direct connection, even if I have no idea if it literally exists as a aesthetic inspiration. Well, Are I you? mean, even just sideways, because like heavy metal was inspired, obviously, by those illustrations. Like, what if we made all the heavy metal illustrations into a cartoon? Um so a thing about this is that the axe from Mandy uh-huh. is actually based off of the F in uh, Celtic Frost, which is the name of a, uh, oh I believe, Icelandic <laughs> oh, yeah, heavy shit. metal band. Yeah, no, not Icelandic. It's a yeah, it's yeah. a heavy metal band. The F in Frost is exactly what the uh, axe, yeah. the battle axe that Red inexplicably forges uh, is is like used for. It's in- it's incredible. It's 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 ugh. Spectacular. Um, This movie um, has a sort of structure that is interesting because um, it's kind of taken this, uh, you know, it's a revenge movie, right? And it has this, like, setup where you think, like, okay, like, this woman's going to get fridged and you expect it honestly just because of genre conventions to happen much earlier than it does. But the first half of the movie really kind of takes a long time setting up Red and Mandy's like relationship and like really kind of um, makes, I feel like the revenge part of it later hit a lot better for me in the end. Uh, What did y'all feel like? How did y'all feel about the first like half of this movie? I mean, like, the first half of this movie is, like, deeply compelling to me because it is it is using a lot of the same aesthetic tools that the second half of the movie does, uh, but is applying them to, like, human interaction that is just off mm-hmm. of, uh, like, what we expect from people talking to one another, right? Like, the conversation that Mandy and Red have about the Starlings is, like just a such an uncomfortable scene for like so many reasons and it is like done expertly um the color grading as it like hangs on her face and so i think that like the execution is so good that even if like it's a little bit long in the tooth i kind of don't care because every single scene is like doing something new with how to make me uncomfortable with two people just talking to each other, uh, whether it be Mandy and Red or uh, Sand and any anyone in his cult, uh, literally <laughs> yeah. anyone who God. he's a pervert around in different ways for all of them, which is like, damn, he can't even be consistent with how he's a freak. Um, and so, like, I, I I really really like the way this movie is paced, and then the second half is just just tremendous um the the first moment that i was like that i knew that i was like really gonna love this movie even if i never watch it again was when uh because that's probably the case uh was (laughs) when the first black skull is uh after after red is captured and he's in the black skulls like lair um which feels like a lair it is shot like a dungeon despite obviously being like just like a home in the middle of nowhere um, when he uh, breaks off the pole 
and then smacks the black skull who just falls down a bottomless a pit that abyss. is next to him <laughs> yeah. for no, for no reason there is no reason for that bottomless pit for all pit the to reasons actually yeah. no, exactly, would, to Patrick. the contrary no, exactly. i would i would argue well, differently <laughs> spoken <laughs> like someone who's never had need of a cistern um <laughs> And so the bottomless pit suddenly becomes like, okay, cool. We're fully in dream logic at this point. And then this they're is back like, 30 seconds later to join the fight from the bottomless pit. What? Yeah. The, the person he kicks down the, the bottomless pit. I was like, is that the same biker? And it is because he starts screaming. You ripped my shirt. You ripped my shirt. It kills them again. Yeah. <laughs> That's, so like that, it's not that, even the, the logic is not even consistent to the point of like kick kick the biker into the abyss the biker's gone no 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 the biker emerges into the fight mm-hmm. uh in the living room like f- two minutes later with remember, a shotgun you're right yeah Fuck. I remember I remember when I first watched this movie being like that's a funny acting and dialogue choice by Nick Cage but he's just being weird but then like yeah it hit me oh. He's just, he's just signaling. By the way, this is the guy that kicked, got kicked down the hole earlier. Um, Which I will will note. I don't think Nick Cage makes any like surprising choices in this. I think Nick Cage is fucking killing it. This yeah. performance is 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 incredible for many reasons. One of which is like the way he just like growls nonsense through fight scenes. It's it's <laughs> it's incredible. I love it. I mean, to to your original question about the, the the beginning of the film, like I've watched countless, you know, whether they're just like revenge tales or revenge tales wrapped in horror films. And mm-hmm. you're right, like the genre convention is what do you want to call it, fridging or whatever is just like set up a visceral attack almost exclusively of a woman or if it isn't a woman, the woman is probably being sexually assaulted in the process <laughs> right. to set up the revenge and What's like beautiful in this movie is that for a film that is broadly vibes mm-hmm. um, and is deeper than just aesthetic, but I feel like vibes is a, is a, is a way of articulating that is that it, I think the fact that it's uncomfortably long and setting up the relationship is purposeful so that those long shots you get of cage when, you know, she's burned, like feel all the more, impactful because too often in these films they do the exact opposite which is that these people this character exists purely as a a motivating factor and maybe you get a a moment where they kiss and have sex and like you like oh they love each other Mm. you don't really buy it like no few films would include you're right the the starling scene or (laughs) the scene where they're talking about the stars and uh he cracks the galactus joke which is was my one of my favorite moments in the original film, like original uh, watching of this, and was all the better here. Both for, I think at the t- a lot of what I appreciated my first time through of watching the first half was um, the vibes of it because the aesthetic is so strong. And yeah. then upon second viewing, a lot of what I appreciated was this more subtle character work that is going on for a movie that you know is is pretty thin on plotting, but is surprisingly heavy on character. Yeah. And those two characters, like having that time with one another where the shots linger, every shot in this movie lingers long, right? Like that is that is one of his defining uh, features visually. And that extends to these character scenes that just don't cut and go on for a couple more lines. And I really appreciated that, especially the second time around, because it's such a, 
deliberate choice in the film where it's two hours. You can easily see the cuts where you get it to 90 and it's quote unquote tighter. But I think it's not quite a tension, but there is something generated by the length, especially early on. I think partially because it runs counter to, I know what this movie is. Mm -hmm. When the hell are we getting to that part? And the longer it drags it out, the more as a viewer, it just generates an energy for the film that you're waiting to to snap a bit. So I think partly also, I think you can't cut the movie down without doing violence to the way it interacts with uh, Johan Johansson's soundtrack. Like Mm -hmm. the movie unfolds at the pace of like a prog ambient album. And so like, like, I think the two, the the sound of Mandy and the pacing of Mandy are so bound together that this is, uh, you know, the, the, this kind of has to be a movie that like unfolds slowly and lingers over uh, details and moments. I think not to, you know, uh, almost reiterate some issues I had with The Lighthouse, but I think once again, I find myself with a film here where I, like was much I, I am much more engaged by the first two thirds of the film mm. than I am by the final third. Like it is it is absolutely true that like of course something goes out of the film when Andrea Riseborough's Mandy is killed. Mm-hmm. Uh that's you know very much the point. But also there is so much good work being done that first half of the film of yes, like establishing their life together, getting a sense of like who Mandy is. You don't you never know her full story, right? Mm-hmm. But you 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 have a sense of these are two people who uh, feel a bit hunted by the world and have retreated from it, uh, and and like I don't know it it it, it is such a it, it walks a very fine line in a way that's really compelling by the fact that on the one hand it's kind of uh, grounded in this like hangover from the sixties vibe where, you know, the, the, you know, the, the uh, Manson family equivalent is still mm-hmm. wandering the highways. Uh, you know, you still have like reactionary politics or, you know, are, are, are going strong as the, as the Reagan, Reagan uh, yeah. you know, voiceover reminds us. But at the same time, against that, where like he, yeah, he's a he's a Manson style cultist, and uh, you know he's he's obsessed with this woman, Mandy. He's going to kidnap her. Also, like demons exist, but like by but they're like a biker gang, and you do have this sense of like like a recognizable reality lives right next to oh yeah but also of course we need to get this blade from the abyssal plane mm-hmm. uh so that we can like kidnap our ne- next victim and that will require some human sacrifice and that's everyone's like yeah of course that's that's yeah. real that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's that exists in world. yes 100 um the other thing is that like i think my other thing about the pacing is that mandy and red are such weird fucking people they're just they're just two little weirdos. And the movie gives them the space to be weirdos who care about each other very much and in like very quiet ways, right? Like they don't need it to doesn't have, treat like, them like weirdos though, right? No, like I think no. you can you can you can come away with that 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 sense that these are really eccentric people and how they arrive here. But I also think the movie does not is not condescending to the two of them, mm. which is different than how a lot of films would would treat these two characters. Right. Like the conversation they have about the stars could so easily have turned into a like, 
look at the look at these two freaks in the woods who did drugs and then talked about the stuff like the, it's so easy to like let that aesthetically slip into something that is like like you said uh, Patrick condescending and the film never does it and instead like gives them the space to be like unabashedly little freaks who love each other very much. Uh, the opening scene where uh, Red looks at the illustration that Mandy is doing, and we never get to see the illustration, but he looks at it and he goes, like, he's genuinely in awe of the work that mm-hmm. she does. And, like, the two of them so deeply love pulp fiction and, like, heavy metal covers and, like, existing in that space. And it's, it's, it's I think, like, really, really endearing and does so much to inform the aesthetics of the second half of this movie, right? Of course, after your girlfriend who you are deeply in love with, who does like fantasy and like heavy metal, like heavy metal style illustration work after she's killed, of course the film is bathed in red and dealing with demonic bikers, right? This is, this is a movie in which like a man is completely broken. And the one thing he had to hold on to, um, like becomes the, aesthetic core of his violence i i also think there's like i I don't know they they are eccentric but i think the the thing that comes through so much is like like we don't know how mandy gets her uh like facial scar for instance we don't know that story but we do know the story she tells about her father and like uh killing those starlings because you know they you know, they stole the cherries off his tree, but really it's more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just, like, male rage is a thing that is in the backdrop of that story. And, the, and just the cruelty of people, the cruelty of the world, the fact that he shows up and he does this. And in the story, he also makes the children learn that cruelty. He mm-hmm. teaches that lesson. And Mandy is someone who sees a, uh, like, dead baby deer and is shattered by the experience. Like, that she's, like hyper attuned to grief and loss for all creatures right she she has a sort of uh you know u- universal empathy and that makes her that does make her weirdo that does make her slightly alienated mm-hmm. from from the world and it makes red that much more special that she feels safe with him because we know yeah. this someone who this does not come this this does not seem like it comes easily too uh but Against the backdrop of that, we also see, you know, she's always wearing a metal band T-shirt. Always. Uh, (laughs) Like, her art is the type of art that graces the covers of the sci-fi and fantasy novels she reads. Uh, You know, she and Cage are comics nerds at a time when that still is very much kind of a, a subculture. Right. And so, like, there's this, and with Cage too, I get the sense of certainly later when he has the "it's time to go back to the old me" uh, <laughs> moment. There's an implication that, like, uh, you know, Bill Duke, whatever whatever the background is, like, Nick Cage has fucked people up before. Yeah, and there's this vibe of like this is this is like um, Eastwood's uh, gunslinger in. Unforgiven, where it's like I have chose, like I'm not this guy anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I put that behind me. But when summon the action, uh, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some bloodshed. But but Cage too, we get the sense of he has chosen a job that like it is the most isolated job he can he can pick. He's a he's he's a lumberjack that gets flown out <laughs> to deep backwoods uh, to work for days or weeks at a camp. Uh, and then it's flown back out to not even quite like 
you know, civilization is still very much on the cusps of it. You know, he's still deep in the wilderness, just like in sort of the settled parts of the wilderness. I think in a little implication, do we see him drink before Mandy is killed? There's uh, no. on the helicopter, one of his coworkers offers him yeah. a drink. And there at is. first there's definitely, yeah, you definitely get the sense that it's not only, it, it, it is both signaling like he might do other things, but not alcohol. And then, but also obviously the like sort of sense of him being like, you know, more of a loner. He's not than, one of the guys. He's not one of the also, guys at all. But I, I got like ex-alcoholic vibes. Right. I yeah. mean, that's the thing that I was thinking, Rob, is like that that vodka is not like he doesn't go to the kitchen. He goes into a little corner in his bathroom underneath like three different things to find a single bottle of vodka in the entire home. Right. Like that is that is the way people hide things. Um, it has to it has to keep it like when he begins to drink it is at one point has to like force it back into his mouth. Like it is yeah. not as though, ah, the sweet release of finally being able to do this thing I've been fighting against. There is like this tension that is snapping yeah, like right. in this moment where he has to actually force it down his throat to summon the courage to do the actions that he feels uh, need to happen next. And, and I'm, I'm with you, Rob, like there is a, there's a real darkness between both these two characters. And I think it's what makes the relationship all the sweeter because I think like the broad implication is two broken, troubled people that manage to find solace in one another yeah. and f- become people they didn't think were possible. And the actions that occur in the film, well, we don't see what happens to to Mandy necessarily. I certainly think it's reasonable to assume like situations flipped. Mandy would have <laughs> tracked down the hunting rifle too and, and try <laughs> and tried her best. Um, but the, like that's, it's such a, it's not how we see relationships portrayed. This is not how we see love uh, expressed on on film. And it is not usually allowed for characters or if they were troubled, if they had like these these kinds of shady or however past, however you want to characterize it, that'd be more of a plot point. Be like, hey, right. like these these are these are some dark motherfuckers. And like you can watch this film and sort of that can wash over you like it, it is not lingered on. It is not it is not like forwarded. Um, and, and I find that to be a really beautiful part of how the the two are portrayed. Yeah. One one thing that really stood out to me uh, was the first time we see Mandy and Red on screen together. Mandy like gets up and stands on the chair she was sitting on. And like one of the most awkward maneuvers I've ever seen a person execute <laughs> with their body. Uh, and it, it looks like an outtake at first in terms of like just like how awkwardly she moves through that space. But it is such like an endearing character moment and like a, a really good summation of like the relationship that we see after that moment forward where it's like these two weird, awkward people who like really bring the best out of one another, uh, or at least like bring comfort out of one another. Um, and in that comfort are able to become better versions of themselves. Uh, and then to see that like taken away, like one of the things that I, I was looking at, like reviews of this movie. Um, and one of the things that I saw is that people were talking like Cage's performance is not just like, a sad or angry man cage is performing as someone who is utterly and fundamentally destroyed by what happens in this movie. He is, he is gone after, uh, Mandy is burnt in a way that is like 
I think the first half of the film really sets up why that is, why he is utterly and fundamentally destroyed and turned into something wholly different by that violence. Mm -hmm. And I would also say, like, it seems, and you would think you're going to get, as at that moment, you'll get, like, what we we, we kind of come to regard as the stereotypical cage performance, right? Like <laughs> scenery chewing, um, like like very broad, especially and, in genre films, right? Like right. he is like there's this this comes, you know, Mandy is essentially like is part of a signaling of a kind of a renaissance of cage being in even genre or non genre fare in which he's being more more celebrated and appreciated, but like. This is a man that has been a lot of like films shot in <laughs> Romania for, you know, like cheap budgets. And he puts on a performance, but it is not necessarily one that is controlled and focused. But when he is forced, to, when the, the camera just holds on him while she's burned and you just see the denial, the horror, the agony, the pain, the resignation, all that pass through in that moment. Mm-hmm. And you come out the other side of that. And then, I mean, the photography and direction gets a lot of credit here, too. We go from the heightened demonic dream state of, like, the cult carrying out their plan and murdering uh, Mandy. Uh, And then we, like, the thing that's maybe most devastating is after seeing, like, Cage overwhelmed by all that, the music lets up. We get a cut to now normal, normal color grading. It's just the outside of their home lit by the exterior floods. Everyone's getting in their cars. It's quiet. The sound of door latches, people walking across grass and the cult departs. And we are firmly back in reality. Yeah. But it's a reality transformed by this all actually happened. Like Mandy is dead. Like her ashes are, are still smoldering there. And it is like, we see him go through that agony. And then I think it's such a brilliant move to transition to this moment where they're like, this is the nature of like grief and life. You're you, you have to get up. You have to go over to your house. You have, you know what I mean? You have to get cleaned up. You have to put on your clothes. You have to like, you have to do all these things, even though this like horrible thing just happened mm-hmm. and he is overwhelmed by it. Like your home is still your home. All your shit's still there. The person you lost, their stuff is, is still there. It was there. Like they were there, you know, just a day ago. Now everything's transformed, but everything's the same. And the movie hits that so perfectly well uh the the mundanity of of handling like the 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 mundanity of the world after dealing with that overwhelming grief mm-hmm. uh and ha- like having yeah and having <laughs> the, the okay the cheddar goblins and an inspired fucking it's, fucking, it's, it's so good <laughs> so it's good. so good i can't stop thinking about it oh, i do love this moment you're, you're speaking to especially because at this point um, we have seen the like the demons being summoned, and like we're starting to get into that. Like you know, there was the whole set session where Man- Mandy's been drugged, and like it's very psychedelic, and it's which we should talk world. about extensively because yeah. it's a great fucking scene. Oh my god! But um, I think the decision to hard cut back to like very kind of more much more stand as they're leaving in getting into the car. It's just showing the like. I don't know. It makes the the kind of callousness with which that character like treats all of obviously all other people, but like obviously has so little regard for other human life. 
like that more that much more stark to me when it cuts from this kind of like overwhelming like uh, I'm like I'm basically a messiah the whatever bullshit to like the, and there he goes just kind of a guy getting into a van right like the, in, mm-hmm. I was just gonna say it no, just really that. heightens that sort of like you know the banality of evil situation that's going on there but one thing I'll say is after this like after we get the normal color grading he walks into the bathroom and turns the lights on and it is just a wash in color and like disorienting in how like vibrant so that, that bathroom is. The bathroom's in, like straight out of like, like the late seventies as far as its color choices carpeted go. Carpeted wall to wall. Right. Yeah. Bold. right. It's, it's bold. It's carpeted wall mm-hmm. to wall. And it, and then he grabs the vodka and yeah. it feels like that is a, that is a transition point to me aesthetically where he looks at the real world and goes, or the normal world, and it goes, actually, no, I am going to fully commit to going into this dark place, uh, or going into this place of, like, aesthetic and vibes, right? I am going to go to the vibe dimension by walking (laughs) into this fucked up bathroom, drinking a bunch of vodka, and then coming out back into this, like, vivid and vibrant color palette uh, that then carries through what feels like the rest of the movie. Uh, other than whole, the conversation with Carruthers. In that whole scene, it's almost like he's making a choice about how much he's going to release over this. Like, because yeah, there's yeah. the there's the moment of like disbelief as he stumbles back inside and um you know, he sees he wears that shirt in the film, but she she's also wearing it for a good portion of the film, right? Like she yeah, the, yeah. the baseball, the baseball shirt. Um and so we, you know, he holds it to himself uh for a moment. And then, like, yeah, we mix it into the bathroom. It's like this, this, this wonderful building action to when he finally just starts screaming and, uh, you know, wailing at what is what is, what has happened here. Uh, but like, almost as a choice of, of like, this is like, there's no suppressing this. Like, mm-hmm. I do feel this way. Uh, this is like, it's it's going to be raw. Uh, it, it's going to be hard, and, and I, it's 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 a it's a wonderful scene. Um, I I'm so curious. You know, I've heard um I've seen people on film Twitter talking about that. If you see movies in person now, there's a horrible trend where people laugh instinctively at uncomfortable stuff in films, or they decide like mm. they like just ironic like detachment to like I'm gonna choose to find this funny. And I was thinking like I feel like the image of him in the shirt. And little tidy whities and like covered in blood. I could, I can almost see an audience like, is this funny? Is this like time for the goofy? Like there, there goes Nick Cage. Mm. And I think there, he's made movies where that scene is played for goofy, you know, well, he, where, where it is, where it is just kind of heightened and, and ridiculous. Uh, but, but it isn't here. Uh, I think the entire, the entire sequence is beautiful. Well, I mean, I think it has that moment to let you, to like be really obvious with Cheddar Goblin right before that, where it's like, this is what this movie thinks is maybe funny, or like there's something that you can laugh at here for a second before we get into like the thing that you're <laughs> right. Like it feels like um they they let a little bit of release happen there before it like gets really, really intense, you know? The other thing I'll say is that I, I think that this is a movie where 
you know, talk about like that uncomfortable laughter. I think that frequently that uncomfortable laughter can be the result of like incongruity or what feels like incongruity to an audience. And I think that if there's one thing that Mandy does, it is establish a vibe so early that the minute you see him in that fucking bathroom, you know that this is not being played for laughs because this is just the palette that this movie works in. This is the like emotional like tone and tenor that has been spread throughout. And I think that for me, like... I don't know how you could see that scene and read it as goofy, given everything that has happened to the point in this movie from like a how aesthetics and like scenes are constructed to this point. I think it does a really good job of establishing a internal logic uh, or lack thereof um, and then communicating that to the audience and then committing to it for the rest of the movie. Yeah, but you you cast Cage and baggage comes with that of course right like you don't cast cage solely on i think is a, a terrific actor like like you know th- that there is a nick cage is, is both stunt casting and also actual casting and so i think part of what the, the the line that scene dances is audience expectation audience baggage it's not as explicit as like a what was that film that came out last year where it's actually like a meta commentary on cage's uh, cage's career incredible um the the weight of incredible whatever or something. Yeah, yeah. That movie was not as good as I wanted it to be, but it's it's very charming and it's it's fine. Um, but uh, I think that's 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 part of why that scene works is because when you are if you've watched Cage for decades, and I think that a lot of the people going into that scene have the weight of that on their shoulders. It's like, all right, here's the wind up. Like here's Cage doing Cage stuff, and it's true, but. I think it also is communicated that this is a kind of like animalistic anger. Like I, I really appreciated that the general way that film and like, and especially like revenge, like horror films that are going to portray grief is, I mean, it's all the same sort of people are crying and they're sad and like that stuff happens. Like I've been through plenty of grief before, but there is a, uh, you know, a comparison I could make to, like a television show like The Leftovers, which is that actually grief is you just wanting to punch a fucking window and that what you do is you perform grief in a different way for everybody else. But when you are left alone by yourself, you mostly just want to destroy something and scream. And like, I felt that in that scene. And like that, that is what I profoundly appreciated about it was like, actually, like if this was to happen to me, I don't think I'd be crying I think I'd be screaming oh, and like yeah. looking for that bottle of vodka too. Yeah. Yeah. God. Uh, one thing I will, I will note about like a trivia fact that I, that I did read that I think is, is useful here. Um, originally cage was supposed to be cast as sand. He was supposed yeah, to, he was, that would be, the, that would be Jeremiah if you were doing, sand. yeah. If you were doing the, the type casting of cage, that hundred percent right. makes, yeah. makes sense. And then he said, no, like, like the, they, they were like, hey, we want you to be Jeremiah Sand. This is a film about the old and the young, blah, 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 blah. And Cage is like, fuck no, what? <laughs> and then a year later, they talked again. And the film had transitioned to something about, like, loss. Uh, and, like, what it means to love someone and what it means to lose love and, like, lose your your footing in the world. And then Cage was like, yes, I would like to, I would like to be in this movie as Red. Uh, and then the director was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Um, which I think is a really cool story of like how yeah. the films, even like basic themes shifted over the course of a year, which then allowed Cage to actually take on a role that feels like 
almost made for him, right? Like, it, it, it feels, this This is a movie that, like, Cage's performance in this feels to me the same way that, like, Adam Sandler's does in Uncut Gems, where it's like, this is a guy who, this is a role that has been basically tailor-made for this one particular person to bring all of the baggage of their previous movies into it and then play with that. I want to talk a little bit about well, sand. Like, I mean, the all the path not taken is 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 cage of sand. I think uh, <laughs> Lin- Linus Roach's uh, sand is. I mean, the char- like by design, the character is not that interesting, right? Like, he's uh, a monstrous, uh, heavy-handed manipulator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, you know, we see him like no sooner as he he sees he sees Mandy becomes immediately obsessed with her uh we see the way he interacts with members of his cult uh sort of the ways he the, the ways he controls them or enables them as it were but i think something that like we talked about like you know this this movie you know you could say the inciting event is a fridging, but I think that they get beyond that because like the way Mandy handles the situation and what she does to Sam, the fact that like, it is like what causes him to <laughs> rage out and like murder her is the fact that she sees him very clearly despite mm-hmm. his efforts to the contrary via, via the drugs, via the, the, the pretensions. She sees him very quickly, quickly and can't help herself. Uh, <laughs> finds him pathetically funny. No. Uh, and like the sequence is, it, it is such a good, like it is such a great sequence because we have him, he's arranged his whole little tableau after she's been drugged by like the, you know, hallucinogenic wasp sting and the, the eye drops and such. Uh, he's arranged his whole little tableau with his little followers and, He's in his little robe and he wants to talk to her about music and immediately he's just like, buddy, have you called the wrong shot? Because we know Mandy's like a metalhead and he's like, (laughs) have you ever heard of the Carpenters? I think they're sensational. And it's like, he's but like, it's 1983. Like, no matter what you think of the Carpenters, they're not like. His his shtick, his music, the yeah. the fucking hippie like flower children shit that he's into. It's moment has passed. He's mm-hmm. he he's an he's he's old. Uh, you know he he is out of step and deeply uncool, and he is trying to present himself as this like awesome guru type figure. But then even better off he put the carpenters on. Because instead yeah. he puts on <laughs> his like little maybe he got an actual album pressed, maybe it's vanity pressing. I don't know, but yeah, I think vanity pressing was a big deal back then. <laughs> like, yeah, just he he puts that shit on with the like I've been blessed with the gift of music, <laughs> and it's that refrain of um. What uh, what's is that it? first line? Well, it's so. It's every man must take. But what's the first line? <laughs> every uh, seed that gives us life. Hold on. Every man uh, must take a wife. <laughs> like, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's it's oh, like God. blatantly creepy and sexual, but like trying to be coy about it. But and and the fact that like he's building up to this like convincing her to like join his cult and have sex with him and 
but crucially, as he's doing it, it's also just a like literally a masturbation ritual. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he he disrobes and he begins trying to get her get himself off, and she's drugged, but she's taking all this in and getting increasingly lucid. And like, she signs her death warrant almost knowingly. She she says, you know, uh, you know, what do you see when you look? When he says, what do you see when you look at me? She says, I see the Reaper. Uh, approaching turns out the crossbow is named the reaper uh, but, but you know she's sort of seen at this moment the way this is all going to play out that mm-hmm. like all of this is going to get everyone killed uh, and it's going to start with her and she kind of chooses to cut this guy down did, mm-hmm. did you write this <laughs> And then just bursts into laughter. Yeah. And when she sees it, and when she when she sees it's making him angry, angry, she laughs harder and like digs the digs the thumb in deeper. Uh, and like effectively like destroys him, right? Like Nicolas Cage and come come along later and kill him. But like this is like this is the humiliation that he's like kind of been avoiding. Uh, forever. It's a, it's a great sequence uh, that, you know, what's the, I guess the point of comparison I make almost is um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of media, but I think like, it's typified by like Far Cry has gotten into this horrible pattern of like villain, twisted villains are so charismatic and fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and here we have one who's like, I'm a twisted villain. I'm charismatic and fascinating. And basically it's a pervert. What's the what's the Far Cry one that takes place like in the quote Midwest like there that yeah. has the whole religious yeah. Uh, yeah. Cult aspect right yeah. like that's I couldn't help but kind of think Far of Cry that 5. yeah yes that villain uh, here because you could you could just slot them in except that one treats the villains as cool as shit <laughs> and and one thing that I I think this movie does do actually pretty well is it under it, it's pretty considered about who it treats as like. Jeremiah Sand is an abusive person, right? Is is mm-hmm. fundamentally an abusive person. And the film like focuses on that above all else, right? Like under like his attempts at charisma, he's just fucking cruel yeah. consistently throughout the entire movie. And like it, one of the things that I do appreciate is like there's that there's the one moment Red doesn't kill one person in this movie. And it is this like person who has obviously just been like wildly and deeply abused by sand into being present for all of this and into being like a place onto which uh, reduced from a person into a place upon which violence is done. Um, And like, I think it's a really, really like, I think it's a depiction of cults and the people in them uh, that is both like deeply empathetic uh, and also does not have any patience for uh, like abusive monsters uh, in a way that I I actually uh, really appreciated. Yeah, because he doesn't spare Marlene, no. uh, the the older one, because because it's keenly aware. Like to a degree, both the women in this cult are victims and also participants in what the cult is doing. But there's matters of degree. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. that like. Marlene has embraced this role and and wields the power that comes with it, even though she is also being abused and manipulated. But like, uh, yeah, Lucy, sister Lucy, 
is clearly like she's allowed to think she has agency maybe, but for the most part is like completely under the control. And you know, the, the, like Nicholas Cage knows the score from the moment, uh, you know, is a demonstration of his power. Sands does the load a bullet into the revolver and, uh, you know, spin it, uh, thing before he burns Mandy. And, and also the, the films like, we don't see Marlene die. I don't, this movie was not interested in showing us Marlene dying because it wasn't like, it was not like a fight. It was not like revenge. There was no action scene to be depicted there. It was just going to be like an act of violence that like is, is a foregone conclusion. Uh, and I think that like, again, that was like a, a, a pretty smart choice on their part to just like skip past that. We don't need that. We don't need that scene. It is much better if we just cut to the aftermath um, in a way that I like, again, I, I think is like smartly done uh, and avoid some like easy pitfalls for like revenge horror uh, like this, where it could like very easy turn into like, like violence against women, torture porn. Uh, and, and I think it does an okay job of like not doing that. Yeah. I think, um, kind of one of the big, uh, differences we have between our like protagonists and the antagonists in this movie is a sort of ability, I guess, or skill to see, um, kind of the truth of a person, I guess. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like sand, um, has this like inflated sense of himself and like everyone in the cult has been, you know, kind of, but like the way that Mandy kind of cuts him down by being able to, like seeing his true self and kind of like, you know, seeing how pathetic he is. Um, and Nick, Nick, uh, red, uh in that moment knowing kind of understanding that it's lucy right that's her name the one who he lets yes, go yeah, yes yeah. knowing that lucy is not um not not bought in has been you know like you were saying kind of uh kind of been held hostage in a, in a sense here um yeah I, I think it comes to a similar point with like the chemist too well i don't know hey does does What's he the kill chemist? the chemist yeah. Does he kill the chemist? Wait, which one? Because there's two, right? No, there's, there's just the chemist. the chemist. It's the dude with the tiger. That's the that's the only one. Okay, because I thought no. Okay, they he the the sand character. I see. Okay, I misunderstood the way who the sand character was referring to the first time because I thought he meant uh, Marlene. Was like, every other death is the, depicted the on screen in. In some fashion. way or another, yeah. right? Even Marlene's, which don't we don't see the death. We don't see Marlene I, I, die, but we see the aftermath of the head, death, yeah. right? So, I don't know. Okay, I, I was I was just uncertain because the way he frees the tiger is like a man who believes he is about to die, <laughs> uh, and and so I was just I was just interested to see how like other people walked away from that scene because it, it is one of my favorite scenes uh, in this movie yeah. because it's like this lull in the violence where it's just like. What happens when a freak comes in, a freak who is definitely like a weirdo comes into contact with what is effectively at this point a a slasher villain, like a slasher (laughs) movie, like villain. Uh, And the answer is that guy goes, I don't need the smoke. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go. Yeah. 
we should actually, as you mentioned, take a break and we'll get back to talk about the second half of this movie and how fucking wild it goes. Be right back. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. All right, and we're back. Um, so, uh, after, you know, a long uh, up and down, like, luxuriating, undulating first half of a movie. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the music swells and comes down, wait, wait, up and down. Wait, Hold on, what? <laughs> Come on. I think that's a good term. <laughs> it undulates. Uh, um, we, uh, we get... Uh, Red, Nick Cage's character, basically going on a killing spree, um, going after the people who killed Mandy. Uh, and first, he's got to check in with Bill Duke. Yeah, he's got to find <sighs> got to hang out predator, with Carruthers. Predator alum, yeah, Bill Duke. Bill Duke. Whose name is Carruthers. What a good fucking character name. I love Carruthers so much. The minute he's on screen, I am enthralled. Yeah. Um, and again, blurring the line between how fantastical we're we getting because he tells right. the story of the bikers. In addition to have been holding on to Reaper, that crossbow uh, <laughs> that you know you you've uh, you you forsworn, and I've got special like special arrows that are really fuck people up. Uh, which again, like, are we in the Cut are we through in the bone? <laughs> right, and it's like, but there's only like three of them, and it's like it's they're magically imbued, obviously. Yeah, for I, sure, I, that's I, the thing, yeah. right? Is like I take this movie at face value. Like, <laughs> at no point do we enter the realm of fantasy. We have just entered a different realm, and they they commingle and coexist. Well, because uh, like he tells the story of like, well, the you know he gets the story out of Red as to what happened, and he describes the biker gang that was there. And he tells the story of, oh, well, people have heard about these bikers. They're kind of a legend of the back highways. Uh, you know, they're killing, uh, you know, truckers and prostitutes and people just in their homes. Uh, but it all goes back to they got a hold of a like they were drug couriers uh, until, you know, they got, I guess, you know, they, they crossed the dealer and cooked them up a special batch. That turn them into these. What we meet later, but he's like trying to <laughs> sell us on this notion of like this was a normal everyday biker gang. Yeah. And they got hold of some bad shit. <laughs> and they turned into guys who think they're demons. Yeah. But like we've seen them. They are demons. They are demons. They just are yeah, demons. These, are, these like the closest analog are Cenobites from Hellraiser. Like the <laughs> yeah. movie is directly ripping imagery. It's it's not like, you know, Hellraiser is specifically pulling from S&M aesthetic. This is 
not quite that, but it's it's adjacent to it. And like these are Cenobites from another realm, like the 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 uh, the <laughs> ocarina that they're using yeah. to some Excuse to me. summon the them. Horn of Abraxas. Sure, yeah, the one spell from Ocarina of Time that I couldn't find was to summon these creatures to take out Ganon. Um, you know, it's it's that's the puzzle box from 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 Hellraiser. Like that is that is one hundred percent what's happening here. And like like I feel like that is. You know, with the, the movie is just suggesting there are there are things amongst us, and they linger and they come between. And it's just a, you know, if you have the right tool, you can summon and 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 then give them. Well, what charitably Rob said in a chat earlier was was milk, but you know, could be any number of substances. Uh, <laughs> um, one of my favorite things about the bikers is the fact that. Uh, and 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 on to like the fact that the Reaper feels like a magic crossbow at times. Um, landing that shot on the dude on the bike is like basically impossible. That is that is a nearly impossible shot to fire <laughs> through an entire like range of trees. A perfect. We don't know what Cage did before. Into Again, the mysterious backstory. Right, but after that, he then hits him with his car. And he does not hit him with his car in the way that people get hit by cars in movies generally. It looks like he hits a, like, concrete divider the way his car reacts to hitting that man's body, which is just covered in, like, spikes and, like, pieces of metal. Mm -hmm. He is not a person anymore. He is, a like, a wholly other thing that is so much more resilient than, like, a a human has ever been. (laughs) And it fucking rules. It rules so hard. And then it's the setup for knocking, now that I know this, knocking the guy down the bottomless pit only to emerge later, apparently completely unharmed. These guys are like, they follow demon rules insofar as you have to cut their heads off or do something like it to actually kill them. It's it's so good. I like to think that the pit is just that's where they came out of. That's that's the pit to the to hell, and that's where they crawl out of. So he was just sending him home for a second, you know. He's like, oh yeah, sorry, oh, hi mom, bye hi mom. I gotta go kill a guy. I'll be back. More <laughs> milk. <laughs> Got it. Mommy milk. It's not milk. Oh, it's too thick to be milk. What do you Ooh. think it is then, Kato? I don't. Any theories? No. You don't want to say what you think it is. They're just fiends for horchata. No. God. They're like it's. I'll bet it's, I'll bet it's tough to get horchata out in the back country like that. <laughs> so blood horchata. They're, they're like mm, horchata. It's like the it's the viscosity of of like uh, what's it called? Like lossy. No, it's thicker. It's thicker than that. Yeah. You think definitely. it's you think it's thicker than lossy? It it looks like um what's the word I'm what's the thing I'm thinking of? It looks like Vaseline almost. Like it's right. goopy. also um, <laughs> like, like the slime that kids play with these days where right. they make it just out of glue. Mm. That's all I could think yeah, of looking just at this. Glue. Just, this is just some homemade <laughs> slime infused with God knows what. Yeah. Um, I do love, though, um, just as a, a, a kind of demonstration of how fucked up. Uh, these people were on this stuff earlier. We see in the in the first scene, we see the 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 magic goop. Uh, the guy comes up and like starts drinking it from the jar. Um, mm-hmm. Later, <laughs> now red in 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 their in their home, like tasting the slightest bit of it, 
gets absolutely blasted into the into the, into the farthest reaches of space by like the yep. smallest amount. So just imagine what that would do to a human brain if you're fucking gulping it down like a big gulp. Like, he encounters prophecy. Like yeah, he's not just yes. blasted into space. He he gets a fucking prophecy and then goes and fulfills it. And when he shows up, the chemist is like, "Damn, prophecy on my right." Prophecy, yeah. Oh, it's so good. Look, what a good movie. The potion seller was right. The strongest potion is too strong for you, traveler. Potion seller. Enough of these games, man. <laughs> I need your strongest potion. You uh, can't handle my strongest potion. <laughs> There's also kind of something funny about like when, when Cage confronts them that like when the veil of their like like they present I mean obviously they're like otherworldly yeah. but also like they're kind of bitches <laughs> like, like Cage shouldn't be capable of doing this like the movie does not portray him as like a particularly capable fighter he is just relentless like he will just not give up mm-hmm. and these creatures or whatever they are are just not used to like man people just, just roll over and die and like <laughs> you you will not do this and so there there's a there's a real savagery to the way he, like when he, the, the humans, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the the cultists, it's more planned, mediated. There is a, uh, uh, like a, a personal satisfaction that we're like, I'm going to do this and then execute it. Maybe chainsaw fight notwithstanding. But like <laughs> with these, it's just a scrap. It's just yeah. a brawl. And there's just an audaciousness that a person showed up and even tried it where it's like oh shit they don't normally do this (laughs) well i think that part of this is that like everyone who is not read in this film believes themselves to be immortal right like they Mm. they are they are acting in the realms of like gods and devils insofar as like they are immortal beings and he is a mortal person and like so much of this film is read encountering a freak and reminding them of their mortality right like Mm. That's the whole thing with, like, that's why uh, the final uh, confrontation with Sand is, like, Sand realizing he is a human being who can be touched for the first time in, like, what feels like years. And he just, like, absolutely loses his fucking mind. And I think that, like, that is, to your point, Patrick, they believe that they are at this point immortal, which is why when Sand, sorry, not when Sand, when Red uh, slashes the throat of the one guy, he's not expecting it because he just, ex- you're right. He believes he's an immortal uh, being who will not die. Well, or, I mean, I actually read it differently in that they're so, in- they don't exist on a plane of our interpretations mm-hmm. of immortal or mortal and that their death is, all right, lost this one, <laughs> like time to go back, like zoop, well, time to start, zip back to where I'm it, from. Like- I get the sense he's killing them, though. I think they're crossed off of every, like, so an interesting thing here is, is when the movie opens, the, the pieces of art we see that Mandy is working on mm-hmm. is one of a phoenix being consumed by fire and a woman uh, rising from it, uh, like, like foreseeing her own death uh, or, or, rep- or a depiction of how her death could be interpreted. Uh, you know, through her art, and then it is of a woman accompanied by like a giant wolf, uh, like a dire wolf, and like depicting her relationship with Red. And you know, that like I think the chemist later says, uh, 
you know, he identifies Cage as a warrior. Uh, come to like, and so the entire thing is entering Wait, metal spe- album, like mythology. Warrior. Pardon? A specific warrior, too, right? Uh, a I Joven, says, a Joven yeah. warrior sent forth from the eye of the storm, which is. Um, oh, Jupiter. Jupiter. Like, the, yeah. The, the, the eye of the, the storm on Jupiter, and like the planet that Mandy specifically says is her favorite for that reason. Um, like those, like that conversation that they have about the stars, apart from it being kind of like an insight into like their kind of goofiness, is also is also can also definitely be read as like them picking the planets that they see the other person as that they're interested in, right? Like red is kind of that boiling storm underneath, but otherwise kind of you know still a beautiful planet, and then uh, which makes Nick's kind of like. The uh, Reds. I keep saying just calling him Nick Cage. Uh, uh, Reds' choice of um, uh, what was it? Saturn first, which is you know a very like beautiful planet. Then switching to Galactus, kind of very interesting. As uh, well, kind of a joke to tease her, but also there is a bit of like I could have it all through destructive, like right. Mm-hmm. I could like an unleashed version of myself, which is kind of similar to like, he does it as a joke, but you know, obviously like by the end, sand makes a speech that's similar of like everything I want is mine. Like that is what I do. And like without a shred of irony or humor, uh, he generally does see the world and people in it as things to consume. I mean, what is, what is the last thing that red says to sand? Uh, No, I can't remember. (laughs) I'm your God now. Red says, I'm your God now, and then crushes his skull in his hands. Like, it's, oh, God, the fucking. We should should sleep on the grindhouse sensibilities of this film. Like, when he cuts the demon's throat. Yeah. And he just gets waterboarded with the guy's arterial spray. Yeah. Uh, and Everywhere. like eventually this gushing will stop, right? It Nick, does not. Nick, let's run that one again. <laughs> uh, so, camera, there's a mess up. Blow it up the blood. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a great kind of signifier too because it never goes away. The blood stays yeah. for the rest of the film on all over his face, and it's just like him ha- him having gone through this transformation into this kind of righteous uh, seeker of revenge that he is for the rest of the movie just bathed in his enemy's blood his axe looks hella uncomfortable to wield yeah so damn looking I love it it's it's so stupid it's incredible (laughs) the little grip uh, yeah, and he needs to have a near grip the near the head just so you can grab it from anywhere. <laughs> but then he starts like doing like dual bladed lightsaber tricks with it <laughs> in the fight with one of the one of the uh, black yeah. skulls. After may I add, shooting that guy in the throat with his crossbow. And Again, he just pulls the boat. He just pulls it out. out. Like, oh, this yeah, is it's no big. Yeah, yeah. And then he, this is why, like. Again, I love this the way that this movie like blends the magically real like mm-hmm. like Patrick was saying, because like you have to killing these guys requires you following magical rules of thinking, right? Like the only way to kill this guy is to chop its head off to chop his head off and like remove his power from the world. Uh, and I, I just think it's I think it's really sick. And then he lights the fucking cigarette on the burning, on the burning head, head, which yeah. is like so stupid. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> what a good movie. And I think the, you know, 
for me, it reaches its height in that second half. Like, I, I don't think the second half is as interesting, but I'll tell you what did interest me. Hmm. Chainsaw fight. Chainsaw fight. And I was like, oh, like, you know, he's he's got his chainsaw. It's going to he's going to fight with that guy. He's going to use his chainsaw. And then it turned out there were two chainsaws. <laughs> and one of them there was a bigger chainsaw. Yeah. Uh, it's it's such a beautiful moment of just like, you know, because that, you know, every, we've all got that image of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like chainsaws as like a horror trope. Always, it's always one-sided, right? It is the thing that the killer comes after its their their victims with. But then having two of them, just having he's both, uh, you know, they're both the the slasher in this in this in this moment. Um, it's so so good. It's just unwieldy. Like it's not, you know, yeah. it is when when you when you see the, you know, uh, you know, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre when when you know that, that character runs around with it, it's it's unwieldy, but it is like an enormous person, yeah, like s- swinging this 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 weapon with like they have the strength to do it and to to enact the violence they want with it, yeah. And and what makes this fight so great is that it is like watching two people with sledgehammers just like, like try and swing them around, <laughs> yeah. and there yeah. is a, a an inelegance to the fight that I is, is really terrific because that, I mean, again, that I think there is a through line from start to finish of, of, of cages of violence, which is traditionally inelegant if, but at least effective. And that, that is almost nowhere uh, more, more seen than in the chainsaw fight. And I think that's what gives it its power is because it really does feel like you're watching two people. Like you can imagine yourself there like, huh? Like, this is cool. You tell me chainsaw fight, I'm in. And then you watch two people try to fight with a chainsaw. And it's like, I don't know, maybe find a rock and just whip it at them. Like, I, this doesn't seem like it's necessarily effective yeah. at, at, at getting to the end state of this fight. But it is it is definitely fun to watch. Uh, the other thing I like about this is that, like, the guy he's fighting, Patrick, to your point, is built like a slasher movie villain. He's yes. He is Huge. a mountain of a guy. He uh-huh. is, like... So, so big it's silly um, well, a lot of these a lot of the sort of like side cult members have very much look like you're you know like backwoods you know texas chainsaw there's a lot of deliverance yuck. happening here yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah. deliverance cha- texas chainsaw massacre like that is that is a lot of what these characters are yeah. seem seem styled upon yeah um and like that is the fun thing is that like in a way, the second half of this movie feels like a bunch of uh, slasher film stock characters coming into contact with a Nicolas Cage stock character in a way that is like deeply, deeply engaging uh, for me because it's it's just so fucking ugh, it's so good. And the fact that the fight is resolved not through like uh, they don't chainsaw joust to the death. The guy falls on on the yeah. chainsaw. God. Yeah. That's so good. Because Cage decides to use literally anything else right, yeah. in, in picking up that chain, which, by the way, so good. You know the minute he picks it. Oh, God, I love a good chain. Just like they keep showing that there's like multiple shots of the chainsaw rumbling on its own on the ground. And you're just like, oh, boy, here he comes. And we just got a beautiful tableau of like, you know, he's falling on the chainsaw. And again, much like movie will not be rushed. No. We're going to watch his body like be <laughs> vibrated by the revving chainsaw <laughs> as blood just like continues to spray out from from under him. Yeah. And uh it rolls. It's, Love it. 
It's great. Um, and then we get the, uh, the, 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 you know, the final scene as he's, uh, entering this, uh, ma- makeshift, I guess. Like, it looks really, I don't know. The, the, the design is, um, if, if it almost feels too designed to be makeshift, but I guess this is where they've been building their, like, little, uh, church, uh, out in the fucking wilds. Um, it has that like you know this this red glow that we've seen throughout the movie multiple times it looks demonic you know despite having a regular crucifix and not <laughs> uh an upside down one but it really kind of i love the way that it's uh framed by the mountains like the mm-hmm. the whole this is just like a beautiful beautiful yeah. shot of um as as he's entering it, um, the once we're oh sorry please no go ahead. I was just saying once we're in those tunnels though underneath the church we we are in uh, dungeons and we are in Baldur's Gate like <laughs> yeah. like we are in, that, that is a cavern the walls are made of brick we are in a crypt. Yeah, that, once he goes north, it's like hmm. North? What do we mean Straight by Straight out north? of reality. Yeah. Like, the last, yeah. the, like, the last, the last little taste of reality we get is the fact that this fight with the demons happens in a home, in, like, place they've invaded at someone's home and killed right. the family who lived there. Yes. And that's our last tenuous connection with, like, a recognizable plane of reality that we're going to have. Chemist Lab is weird. It's like a sci-fi, uh, you know, bizarre, pristine lab uh, that appears to be, like... Also, he has a tiger. Also, he has a tiger. He just has a tiger. tiger. (laughs) Um, But when Nicolas Cage arrives with his tiger shirt, it is time to release the tiger. mm -hmm. He knows without saying. Yeah. Well, this is the thing I love about that too. Is I they they have a whole conversation. You just don't hear it. You know. Obviously, they're both they both ascended because they've drank of the goo, so they could just telepathically communicate with each other. He yeah. knows what he wants. Oh, <laughs> you were wronged, man. Yeah, you were so deeply wrong. <laughs> it's so good. Um, you another could handle my strongest potion. <laughs> couldn't keep the potion seller. I need your strongest potion. Uh, just want to really quickly shout out another one of my favorite. Uh, shots in this scene and like another kind of threshold that they that they put up here when the um what was he riding was it a motorcycle that he was riding gets stuck uh, or an ATV uh, yeah. gets stuck in the like mm-hmm. graveyard and it like does this slow zoom out to show other cars that are just like in this sinkhole full of mud but the the only light in the scene is the the headlights and the taillights of his little ATV it's just it's great. Um, you see, like scenes, the 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 like use of kind of heightened uh, dialect, uh, diegetic lighting, almost. Uh, but like every red is redder than you imagine the red lights on the car are. But like there's there's still, it's still like coming from that source in in the world. Like it, I don't know. It's such a beautiful, really striking way to to light a film i think yeah it's uh like it's 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 an incredible like it's such a heightened sequence uh again like i think the 
like tonally the film is going to struggle to live up to the first half and it's also going to struggle to live up to the highs of the chainsaw fight yeah and so i think in a weird way it's like i don't know that's a flaw that it's a bit anticlimactic the the like there is no fight to be had here right like this is like sand is going to like try a couple strategies to get out of this. He is going to try his grandiosity uh, and uh, you know, his, his sense of his self as a, as a, as a man with a, with a greater destiny uh, and, and a sort of a, a God on earth that doesn't work. Uh, he starts playing for the, like, I'll suck your dick, man. It's like your fucking dick. <laughs> and uh, also uh. like, and it's like you, you already sent Marlene out to try that. Uh, that didn't that didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's also it's also kind of a revealing thing of like this is, again is like how he sees the world. Just a like base appetites yeah. can be satisfied and problem go away and doesn't understand like you know we're so far beyond that. How do you think this is what this is about? No, yeah. but. He well, does that's what it would be about for him. Right? For him, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. He's, he's such a, uh, such a like childish man, like pure id. Uh, that you know, this is this is like what he thinks of as a way to he, he can sort of spare himself before he returns to sort of grandiosity. Uh, and we just see him get his head exploded. Yeah, it's gnarly. <laughs> it is absolutely. Um, I love, I love it as like a, just kind of like definite portrayal of like the, the, like the, the sort of not strength, or I guess power he had over these people was like fully in manipulation and like abuse and without like his cultist to like protect him basically he is like you know reduced to groveling in, in this moment and it's just like the the like quickness with which he's like trying to find any <laughs> any any way out uh, is very i don't know very amused like very satisfying to just see him like yeah like what he could do from a position of like uh power when Mandy cut him down like he's kind of forced back into that position but like as a means of groveling and trying to like find yeah like you were saying find um like he he thinks there's a new pecking order and he has to be in in that pecking order and it's like that's not what we're doing here bro <laughs> um yeah, yeah. um I think we can we check pause. in on a couple. Yeah, I was gonna say, should we? Oh, yeah, emails. Yeah, yeah, we got some questions, and and Red can jump in okay. whenever. Um, all right, I think we can go to a few questions. We got a few. Thank you to everyone who submitted one. Um, let's see here. Uh, anonymous writes. Uh, one of or actually, yeah. One of my favorite aspects of Mandy is its lush, painterly, unrealistic use of color and light, which we don't often get anymore. Another recent example is Nicholas Winding reference Copenhagen Cowboy. Can you think of others? When do you think the current tyranny of realism in lighting will end? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
which I think we we briefly brought this up actually. I think obviously the Green Knight is a a great example of this where like when you want to get otherworldly light like they really they really push the colors in that movie as well yeah Um, sometimes this is a budget thing right like i I wonder you know you you are almost pushed to use the resources you have to create the sensation you're going for because you are less reliant on practical and visual effects that are going to cost more money. And I don't know how much Mandy cost to make, but my guess is it wasn't a huge budget, right? Like it was, um, you know, something a little more reasonable. And so, you know, I think part, part of that is just simply out of like, it's, it's, it's a way of like masking in a good way, what you cannot accomplish by putting other things on the screen. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish more films had that restraint, it's frequently why I love lower budget affairs because you get to see ingenuity uh, yeah. come through and trying to portray what you might do differently if you were given a much bigger check. Um, maybe that is not the case. Like, a, you know, like this director, like the movie they did before this, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which, look, try as I might. I can appreciate that movie for its visuals, but I couldn't get to the <laughs> other side, the other side of it. Um, uh, you know, uh, I do think sometimes that comes, that comes out of it, but, uh, uh, yeah, this, it spoke to, I, I enjoy it. I, I just, I wish more films did that. I wish more films did that, that also had the, a budget to go alongside it. So it doesn't always feel mm-hmm. as though it is coming out of a, 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 you know, a lack of budget and, and is more completely a choice of, of a portrayal. Yeah. I think, um, the other thing is, I would say, like, I feel like we don't live in an era of realism. Uh, like, I think a lot of lighting and color choices are also painfully artificial. Uh, they are as distinctive as, like, 1960s, 1950s Technicolor films. It's just, whereas, like, you know, three-strip Technicolor is a glorious, uh, saturated riot of color, uh, a lot of the choices that we see being made around, like, digital color grading make things look like shit. <laughs> and it, it also doesn't look real, right? Like the world. Well, so frequently it's not lit for the product that ends up. I mean, I think like the most like the House of the Dragon, right? Like the most recent yeah. like Game of Thrones spinoff had a sequence where it is these characters on the beach at night. And it looks like dog shit because you find out later it wasn't shot at night. Like it was shot in like the the daytime. And then they just like visually alter it later. And I think that is, you know, similar to a trend of what you're talking about, Rob, where it's like things aren't lit for what they're portraying. They're just shot and figured out later mm. uh, in post. And I, I think that leads to a a strangeness in what you're seeing and an unrealism that is that is harder to grasp. And I, I do think the the question askers trying to hit on a point of like, even if it isn't realistic to like what that light would look like. It often isn't expressionistic the way these films are, right? Like, it's maybe there are color choices being made, but there aren't often, like, color isn't a main uh, character like the way it was in Mandy. Like, it definitely, like, it, uh, you know, commands, its presence is always important. Where, like, what you're saying, Rob, feels more like, even if it's not realistic, it's also not doing anything other than just being the the choice that was made kind of, you know, real quick. Uh, I think people want to look more into this. Uh, there've been a few people written about this, but Emily St. James, uh, wrote an article called colors. Where did they go? An investigation over at Vox uh, last January. 
Perfect. And yeah. it's like a discussion with a number of showrunners and cinematographers trying to get at like why do so many things have this like grimy, desaturated, like color suppressed look? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's it it there is no one answer. Some of it right. some of it is stylistic choice, uh, and some of it is an effect of things that are like it sort of a, an attempt to control things that digital can do wrong uh, or at least like that uh, you will get effects you're not expecting with digital photography. And so you can course correct really heavy handedly with post process, like, like post uh, production, like color grading. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a few answers to that. Uh, but, but yeah, I think, uh, but like, you know, yeah, Mandy is such a striking film, uh, you know, because it, it uses and leans on uh, that that sort of saturation. Uh, I think the only other thing I could think of that had some like really striking color moments in in a similar way, or not even in a similar way, but in a um, in a different way was a. Uh, Fury Road, which is also mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like really plays with the saturation in in different scenes. Um, Has anyone seen the but, what is it called the black and chrome yes. version, the black and white? I have, I yes, I have. I've heard it's too. I've heard it's spectacular yeah. despite not being obviously it was presented in in color, but I've heard the black and white version. Sometimes that's just a a gimmick, mm. you know. You'll see films like the black and Logan white version. Noir. Right, right. But I've I've heard this version in particular is striking. Well, the, do you know the other thing about the black and chrome version? It cuts all the dialogue uh, mm. in terms of like all dialogue becomes silent and instead it's just the soundtrack, uh, the moving image, and I believe some sound effects. Um, oh, it's, it's Yeah, it's a pretty hmm. like striking version of the film. You could do a version of, I, I don't know that this movie would work in black and white necessarily. I think, you know, color is so specific to it, but you could probably cut a version of, 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 I actually think maybe I saw, maybe I'm thinking of this because kind of someone has a question about this. Um, you could cut a version of it without any of the dialogue and you could probably put together something pretty striking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about the scene where um, uh, Red is screaming and they just cut the dialogue. They cut the sound of his voice completely, but keep the sound of uh, brother something. I think it's John or something. Uh, whatever. Uh, one of the brothers, they keep his voice in there at just like normal volume. The things that this movie does with like sound and what sounds are allowed to be heard by the audience in which ones are completely cut is like really, really striking. Um, yeah. Speaking to that, to that question, uh, also anonymous. Do you think that the dialogue in Mandy is necessary? Other than dialogue, the sound design is so abrasive and menacing that I've imagined a mostly silent cut of the film's protagonist, minus Nick's laughs, cries, and screams, of course, should make the experience even more heightened. I don't know. I feel like I feel like in the first half of the the film, especially, there it 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 sets up too many stakes, honestly. Like mm-hmm. I, I do think that the emotional core gets lost if you don't have the dialogue of the first half, but also, like, I don't know. I think Red has some Red has some really good monologue. Like, there are some really good monologues in this movie, even if they aren't like there are some very well-delivered monologues that I want to be able to hear. When Red walks into the room with Jeremiah Sand and says 
the the psychotic drowns where the mystic swims, you're drowning, I'm swimming, is just like, I I need that line. I need it. (laughs) And then it begins this like monologue duel where Red and Sand just like enter debate me mode and just start like (laughs) screaming evocative phrases at one another before, uh, before Red ends up killing him. And I think that like, that scene is just like so integral to like the vibes of this movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the way I think about it is, is like black and the black and Chrome version of, uh, Fury Road, which is that it is not a replacement. It's a complimentary piece. It's a reinterpretation Mm -hmm. of the work. And so I don't think you'd make a better Mandy by removing that, but I think you could make an interesting take on Mandy by rearranging the pieces, um, and removing the dialogue and, and like really just emphasizing the, the visuals and the, and the sound design. Um, if, if anything, it'd be the kind of way that like, I might rewatch it more because it's the kind of thing that could just be on, right? Like <laughs> in there, as opposed to being, you know, being fully present for watching, you know, the film and taking in uh, all the dialogue portions. I'm just imagining a version of Patrick who's like doing a secondary task, like cooking dinner and he turns to mm-hmm. his left and he's like, oh, yeah. It's that scene where that guy gets chainsawed. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. That, if, yeah. If, if, <laughs> nice. if my, if my children could handle it, that's what, that's what would be happening on the screen. Like, like you know, shutter, the horror, uh, you know, uh, sub has like a television feature, which is like, hey, we're just throwing movies. And I love, I love that. you just having things on in the background, whether it's sports or, mm-hmm. a, or a person, you know, getting a pike through, through their eyes, you know? Uh, different vibes for different days. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> Blake in Texas asks or comments and then asks from the moment I saw the poster for Mandy, I knew it would be incredible. Did you know that the director's dad, which we actually, we spoke about this is George Cosmatos who did Rambo first blood part two tombstone and one of the greatest VHS cover sci-fi movies ever Leviathan. What are your favorite films based entirely on the cover slash poster? Did y'all see the poster for for Mandy? Good one. It's really good. Yeah. I feel like I will say I did grow up outside of the era of like covers and posters, which is tough because I think they're really sick. But when I, once I was a kid, like my grandmother really loved them, but, um, she was the person who would buy movies based entirely on their covers and actors at family video. And I was the person who did the same with games. Uh, and so I can't really, can't really think of any like favorite film posters. Yeah, Cause we like, yeah, you grew up in a trailers are everywhere sort of era where like us growing up, like you saw trailers, I guess at the beginning at the of a VHS theater. tape or at the theater, mm-hmm. like yeah. at, at most. And so trailers really didn't mean anything. Uh, until like, I remember like the earliest days of downloading, uh, Apple like QuickTime trailers at like poster oh stamp God, sizes yeah. was like yeah. my first experience with digital trailers and being like this this shit fucking rules. Um, I'm trying to think, couldn't you like download? Am I misremembering that you could download a trailer for The Matrix or something? Was one of the that early- was one of the early yeah. ones I think. <laughs> um, but the QuickTime like I remember like Yahoo like there was a you know like Real Player and things right, like that. Real but, like, Player, QuickTime had oh the my best, God. <laughs> QuickTime had the best quality. Um, yeah. For for all the the trailer stuff, um, I do know. Um, like I remember growing up, I was very taken. Let me find the cover to it. Uh, uh, um, 
I could do this for yes, bucks. This movie, um, which this none of this yeah. isn't a surprise to anybody here. Uh, Carnosaur. Carnosaur. Um, oh which, my god! Look at uh, that guy. Driven to extinction, back for revenge. Um, and uh. I, uh, Jurassic Park was you know one of my all time favorite movies as a kid. Still remains one of my all time favorite movies. And so basically, walking up and down the video store with anything with a dinosaur on it was yeah. immediately appealing. Yeah. And then, you know, when I eventually saw the movie and like, this is like what we're <laughs> working with. That's here. amazing. Um, the puppetry is maybe yeah. not as good as what Stan Winston was producing uh, with Steven Spielberg. It's probably a movie I would enjoy a lot more now than <laughs> I did at the time because I was like desperately searching for the experience of Jurassic Park right. again right. somewhere else. Um, and was happen. not getting not it from happen. from Carnosaur necessarily. <laughs> but every time I'd walk past that box art and finally I convinced my parents, like, I don't have nightmares. Like, I'll be okay. And they're like, ah, fuck it. Like, you can you can watch this movie. Um, and uh, I became way profoundly disappointed. But you know what? You know, maybe my turn will be a chance to revisit. <laughs> not my turn, but how do I connect Damn. my turn Damn. to Carnosaur to <laughs> at some point? I, one can only dream. I love this poster, Patrick, specifically for one of the poll quotes, which sure. is, thumbs up. Terrific. I like this movie, period. <laughs> period. <laughs> yeah, but can we look closer at who said it? Zoom in. Wait, Enhance. Wait, open in browser. Gene, Gene Siskel? 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 Of Siskel and Ebert? <laughs> what? What are we doing? That's incredible. What year is this movie? Uh, 1993. Okay, no, he, I, don't think, I don't think he had brain cancer by then. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh. Um. Alright, let's let's do another one here. Um here's one from Chris from Question Mark. After a screening of Mandy, they showed a Q&A with the director and star, and Cage was asked about his dream, what about, asked what his dream role currently is. With no hesitation, he said that he would absolutely kill it as Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Does the Waypoint crew have any roles you'd like to see him cage up? Love the My Turn series and keep pointing the way, Chris. Ah. Oh. He's done so much already. Yeah. I feel like, especially in recent years, there's been like an even, you know, uh, uh, n- cage-a-sance, a nick-a-sance. <laughs> but like in an, appre- in an appreciate, well, like yes. I think there's been like a, a real effort to, like even in that movie, you know, Renfeld that, that came out, that apparently is not very good. But like it's so like, man, I, I, I'll watch that when it comes out on HBO Max just to see, him do his best David Bowie impression sure. as Dracula. <laughs> like that sounds, you know, entertaining. Um, uh, I, guess- I mean, mostly I think about pairing him with directors, yeah. right? Like we just watched the lighthouse, but I would love to see Robert Eggers do something with Nicholas Cage. Like, Damn. Um, because like Cage gives as much as he gets right from mm-hmm. the material 
and the filmmakers that he works with. I think part of the reason that Mandy works is like, Cosmatos is a excellent filmmaker and is like asking him to go to a place and extracting that out of him. Like that is just kind of the actor yeah. cage has been like, sure. You can say, oh, I guess he's just like, like, you know, taking these cheap roles and whatever. And, but like the man loves to act and just like clearly just wants to be on screen and like keep inhabiting different roles. And so when I think about modern filmmakers that are able to pull that out of people like Eggers is absolutely one of them that I would just love to see what Cage would do when paired with a filmmaker like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, please. please so for me, I think it would be like, um, and I just looked up to make sure they hadn't worked together and uh, no, but uh, this is someone that uh, Cage has is sort of on record as, as wanting to work with. Um, but like, I would love to see Cage in a Spike Lee movie. Uh, mm. Like that is because like, I think there's, yes, the, the, like, We've gotten a lot of like um, somewhat taciturn uh, Nick Cage performances of late. And then a lot of his more verbose roles tend to be really heightened and broad, like see Bad Lieutenant, uh, et cetera. But I'd be so curious what like a Spike Lee script draws out of him because uh, those movies are stylized and they're, and they're, and they're stylish, mm-hmm. but they're also very chatty. Uh, Spike Spike Lee's movies uh, exist a lot in like dialogue and monologue, and I would like love to see Cage get a like meaty role in, you know, really like any kind of movie that that Spike Lee makes. You know, he like he he makes he's he's made like more studio films like like Inside Man, um, and then there's like the more personal stuff, um, and, and more like uh you know, class and race specific stuff, uh, like do the right thing, but there's a gamut of, you know, experiences between there. I would just love to see uh cage in a Spike Lee movie. Mm. I'm trying to think of who I want, of who I want to see him paired with. Mm-hmm. Because like, when I think of like, what do I want to see from cage? It is something like, uh, uh, a movie that is like fully built around him. Um, and that is like like y'all said, pulling something different out of him. I I did check one thing. I didn't realize that he uh, was in. I didn't realize that he. I guess because I didn't recognize him in Raising Arizona. Uh, I did not recognize him in that movie. Mm. I would love to see a modern Nicolas Cage in a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> um, I think that'd yeah, be really. Fun. I think that'd be really really fun. Yeah, revisit the yeah. I don't, God, I feel like they could do such a good job with taking a Nicolas Cage stock character and making a black comedy film about what happens when that person comes into contact with normal people. Um, I think that'd be I think that'd be really fun. Well, and also that would take him. He, you know, even Mandy itself is genre fair. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's he obviously excels and enjoys being in that like the. He was in another terrific horror film, uh, Colorado Space, an adaptation of the Lovecraft story. That movie is directed by a horrible monster that taints everything about that film. <laughs> but he gives an incredible performance in in that movie that I that I quite liked. But there's so much and like genre obviously like works to his palate as as an actor. But I also think he's getting a little pigeonholed in that yeah. in that sense. And I love like that's why the Coen Brothers strike me as such an interesting pair because even Eggers is is you know, closer to the genre fair. And, and like he can do big, broad comedy and, and, and drama. He has just not really been given 
the opportunity. And he's very funny. Like, in, he's one of the highlights of Into the Spider-Verse. Like, I saw him bitching about <laughs> that he's not going to be in the sequels. He's like, I don't know. Yeah, like, I guess not. And which is unfortunate because, like, I think that was a a really, you know, how many times are my kids going to be exposed to Nicolas Cage? And it delights me to no end, like, when I see my kids cracking up at, at his character in that film because he's genuinely uh, funny. Yeah. Um, we may need Ren's pick. I was going to say, I think Fuck. <laughs> that'll take us to the end of this episode of Fuck. my turn. Next, next turn. Next up, we've got Ren. Have you made, have you made a choice? Have you considered during this time? God, been, Make your I've, choice. I've been considering. I, I don't want to go with the, the easy one because I feel like, I feel like we've done the one that I proposed at the beginning of this podcast. I think we've done it before, right? Uh, for something. Oh, you can say it. Annihilation. Annihilation. Yeah, um, yeah. We've done we've done it for something, right? Was that part of the stalker? Uh, I don't think no. so. No. I think we we discussed it as like you know in conversation with, but not. Um, Did we? I don't think we've done an explicit discussion on on annihilation, and I'm, I guess I'm surprised it wasn't a waypoints because that's around yeah. the same era. Yeah, exactly. But, I could have sworn there was something, but it wasn't big enough to like really stick in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was I was debating between probably um, just a mention of it ultimately. Annihilation and Arrival, uh, just to give people an idea of where I'm at, because I think Annihilation is a really like excellent film, and I've never seen Arrival, and I would love to hear another. Uh, you want to hear another score yeah. from from yeah 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 you would yeah it's all oh, the score and that is great in that film fuck. Fuck. You know what? Let's go with Arrival. That's where we're, that's where we're oh, going. Yeah. Oh, well, Patrick, do you still want to do the thing that you wanted to do? I don't. I am fine with dead kids in films. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant, but okay. But okay. Oh, I thought this was maybe like a warning. Like, Patrick, that movie does open with something horribly distressing. No, no, no. no that's child. me asking no. if you still <laughs> plan on going to the film that we had previously suggested you would be going to. Because I, I'm trying to figure out which has the best connective tissue to where I know that you wanted to go previously. Oh, don't worry about it. No, don't. Don't. We, we're, we're good. If okay. you want to do Arrival, that's that's okay. fantastic. I, I think that's a great choice. Let's do Arrival. Hey. Yeah. Next week it's next next week. next, next time. <laughs> I keep doing it. It's yeah, good, good joke. Uh, next time it'll be my turn, and we're going to watch the 2016 science fiction language film Arrival. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm a time that is. Mokata, you're you you're the captain today. Oh, I have yeah, to pull up time that is. God damn it, <laughs> you motherfucker. Oh, that's right. Well, you don't. Okay, you don't need it. All right, let's just go on forty. <laughs> wow, that's so long from now. There it is. There's so much space. Can we you talked over our clap? Yeah, great producing right there. Gets into the host chair and just yeah. No, I, the clap is totally. They're talking clear. lumpy on our tracks. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they've got the they've got I, the I little marker. Yeah. Well, I know what I'm doing here. I know what I'm doing. Here. It's fine. I mm -hmm. just think it's I just think it's uncouth. 
Uh, Carter, you're completely on. The woman who brought an entire breakfast sandwich into the podcast <laughs> yesterday can't be <laughs> like, you talked uncouth? over our clap. That's uncouth. <laughs> Damn. Let's make a point to not eat breakfast on the podcast. I know. I'm sorry. Mm. Oh, dear. Be. Have I betrayed, a, have I betrayed a, a small psychological pet peeve? I have. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I'm sorry. I'm really done. <laughs> okay. All right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.